Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Maybe just give like a three, two, one. Sure. Okay. In three, two, wait, so I'm, uh... This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Well, today on The Breakdown, Nikki Haley finally gets that one-on-one contest she wanted with Donald Trump as the wheels fly off the Ron DeSantis campaign bus before he even gets a chance to put on snow tires for the New Hampshire primary. And then within minutes, seconds, he kisses the ring of the guy who called him Ron DeSanctimonious. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance, and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. There we go. In some ways, DeSantis was done in by the polls. Remember, they once showed him flying high. But the Florida governor's numbers have been sliding downward faster than a skier in Lake Tahoe, punctuated by a very distant second place in Iowa after predicting he was going to win. So we're going to have a lot more on polls, how they shape voters' impressions of candidates. When can you trust a poll and when can't you? And the challenges of polling in an era when so few people even answer the phone if they don't know who's calling. Veteran pollster David Binder joins me to talk about all that and more. But first joining me here to dig into the last 24 hours in presidential politics is KQED politics correspondent Guy Marzarati. Hey, Guy. Hey, Scott. You know, DeSantis just had he just never really got the traction after he had that early peak. And he was just odd, kind of an odd candidate. A lot of people just didn't feel comfortable with him. Yeah, I think a campaign that struggled to take off and really just find its window, right? If you go back 365 days, I think a lot of the conversation at the start of this campaign last year was about DeSantis really, you know, getting to Trump while he was vulnerable, while coming off the 2022 midterms and making an argument to Republican voters that the electability was going to be the top issue. And, you know, saying three out of the four elections uh, since Trump became the face of the party, the Republican Party had underperformed. The problem is Republican voters never really believed Trump lost, many of them. So it became hard to make that argument. And then, you know, as the months went on and we got into the spring, Trump started, he faced his first indictment for the Stormy Daniels payment. At that point, his approval went back up among Republican voters. The campaign became a lot about his legal troubles. And DeSantis at that point was just completely unable to thread the needle of, you know, speaking out against the indictments while also feeling like he couldn't completely defend Trump's character. That was an impossible uh, window to or needle to thread, and he didn't do it. Yeah, and we, you know, we mentioned Nikki Haley. She always wanted this one-on-one, but you know, you, the polls at least again show uh, from Iowa that, uh, in fact, by two to one, I think support 
supporters of DeSantis really support Trump. They prefer mm-hmm. Trump over Nikki Haley. So it, it, this really doesn't look good for her uh, going into tomorrow's primary. Well, right. That was the thing. I mean, DeSantis tried to aim, you know, target his message at Trump supporters, kind of the right flank of the party, which was strange because that those folks have been so loyal to Trump over, you know, the last uh, five or six years. I think, you know, looking at DeSantis campaign writ large, both his campaign, the super PAC never backed down that was created to support him. Puzzling that, you know, <laughs> how they how they the, the campaign that they ran. And really, if you look at it, the way in which they almost replicated both losing strategies from from Republican presidential candidates in recent years. They did the all in on Iowa court, you know, Christian conservatives, the Rick Santorum, Ted Cruz campaign. They tried that. It failed. They also did the kind of Rudy Giuliani. You know, we can we have the money to look ahead to California, to Florida. We can hire staffers there. You know, we can build the ground game. That also failed. So they, they were able to, you know, kind of uh, have a, a platter of all different kind of failed strategies all in one campaign. The pieces just didn't come together. Oh, man, he's dropping. You're dropping the jigsaw puzzle references. So we got to we got to mention puzzle gate. So, yes, this never back down pack burned money. You, you got to think this uh, campaign is going to go down in, in history. It'll be taught in campaign classes, what not to do. But there was puzzle gate uh, just before yes. the Iowa caucuses. You'd think his pack would have more uh, you know, more important things to do, but there was a picture of the head of the pack doing a jigsaw puzzle. A hundred plus pieces, that thousand, right? a thousand, thousand pieces, pieces. <laughs> uh, and, they, and 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 Mother Jones has tracked down the name of the puzzle: Moon Cabin Retreat, which presumably that's where perhaps that's where they're all he is. That's where they're headed right now. You know, the, the other thing that I, I made a reference to Ron DeSantis being a little bit awkward. You know, there was the smile. He was attacked for wearing lift shoes. And it reminded me a little bit of Richard Nixon, you know, um, who was seen like, you know, walking on the beach in 1960 wearing a tie, you know, and just kind of just a little not yeah. the kind N- of guy you want to go have a beer with. Nixon won three presidential primaries and two terms in the White House. He so did. I- <laughs> eventually. Eventually. So, you know, obviously, I think by endorsing Trump, he is sort of trying to maintain his viability going forward, looking to 2028 and his other potential you know, uh, rival in 2028, uh, the governor here, uh, Gavin Newsom, couldn't wait to tweet out merch fire sale. Uh, yeah, that, that one had been in the drafts folder for quite yeah, a bit. That, I think. He just had to hit send uh, on that one. But how about our presidential primary set for early March? Once again, California, Daylight, we don't matter. Short. Not you and I, we matter. Yeah. But, you know, the, the state's <laughs> the, the presidential voters. primary, this has been now the fifth time this century that the state has moved the primary up, the thinking being you have it early, you juice voter turnout, perhaps you have candidates come here and care about California issues. And you got to say, if you go through the history, it hasn't totally worked out. You know, it, it mattered for Bush and for Kerry in 04 a little bit, huge for Hillary yeah. in 2008. But last, 2020, Although she didn't get the nomination. She didn't, but a lot of delegates at 2020, it up until the final hours, we thought it would matter. And then... Well, you know, in defense, though, it's so expensive to run a campaign here. And I mean, I think that's always been the argument for a smaller state like Iowa, New Hampshire, you know, but or South Carolina, Nevada, states that are also more diverse. Uh, I mean, California does have, of course, a lot of people, but it's just so expensive. And so to run kind of a shoestring campaign here is Even not Even if really it was possible. important, it's not necessarily going to bring people here to barnstorm. Yeah. yeah uh, great. And one other last thing before we uh, transition here. Uh, you know, I do wonder um, whether the fact that this is going to be sewn up, likely, most likely, by the time it gets here, is that going to have an impact on turnout? And could it potentially hurt 
Steve Garvey, the Republican mm-hmm. who's running for the U.S. Senate, or is it just so easy to vote here now? You don't even have to get up off your you know couch and cast a ballot. Yeah, I mean, I'd still I still think this is a primary that favors a more conservative, older electorate by virtue of there really not being a competitive Democratic presidential primary. Um, but you know, maybe there are some DeSantis voters who feel less enthused. I don't know. I, I still think this is a, a primary where the turnout model probably favors someone like Steve Garvey. Yeah. All right, Guy Marzarati, we'll be watching the debate tonight. I'm sure a lot of you will as well. And then tomorrow we'll be talking about it. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with veteran pollster David Binder. He's worked for Presidents Barack Obama and Joe Biden and many others. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And as we get deeper into this election year, the one thing you can count on is polls. Lots and lots of polls. Who's up? Who's down? Is Trump really leading Biden by that much in Nevada? Is a Fox News poll any better or worse than one from NPR? And how do we journalists mess up? reporting on polls. What are some of the common mistakes that we make? Well, you might have noticed, but here at KQD, we try not to focus on the horse race too much, you know, who's ahead at any given moment. But we figure it's good to help folks understand the difference among polls and how to interpret them. So we invited someone who can help us sort through all these questions and more. David Binder has been conducting polls and focus groups for decades. His clients have included Presidents Obama and Biden. He's worked with organized labor and business groups. And he and I also happen to have gone to college together many years ago. I won't say how many, David, but welcome to Political Breakdown. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Scott. Thank you. So let me begin with a big picture question. Um, give us a, a brief history of polling. I think it started in the maybe in the 30s, the Roosevelt era, maybe. Yeah, that's about right. Your timeline's about correct. Looking at California's history of polling, you know, we have uh, the the grandfather, one of the grandfathers of polling in Cal, right in San Francisco, actually, uh, Mervyn Field, back in the 1940s. Uh, he was one of the first pollsters to put out public data. And there were others around the country, Gallup and, and others, uh, back in the, the middle of that century, of the 20th century. But Mervyn Field was, was one of the leaders in polling in in, uh, that had his offices right here in San Francisco. Back in those days, uh, polling was done door to door, believe it or not. You, they knocked on people's doors. They knock on people's doors and, and, and have them fill out questionnaires. And, and uh, you know, that was predating our, our telephone surveys. But we've come a long way since then. Well, tell us about that, because uh, even calling people on the phone has changed. Um, 
how so? I mean, the obvious thing is people have cell phones now, and a lot of people won't answer their phones if they look at the caller ID and they don't recognize who it is. Well, just uh, just as technology has impacted everyone's way of life these days, technology has impacted the polling industry. And uh, even for myself, I started the very first polls I did were about 40 years ago now in the mid the early 1980s. Uh, and that was before laptops and cell phones. And, and uh, we at that point were doing all of our interviewing by telephone. Uh, obviously, uh, as you pointed out, things have changed and now we have cell phones and now we have uh, online interviewing. So polling now needs to reach voters where they are to get their opinions. And you can't rely on telephones anymore because, as you say, a lot of people are never going to respond to a, a telephone number that they don't recognize. Especially well, younger voters. Is Especially younger voters. So for our polling techniques, we have to we still use telephones. There's some people that do respond, older people especially. We still do some landline polling, but that's a minority of our methods, more cell phones. And then we also go online. Uh, and today we use, uh, we reach out to voters both through email and through texting. Uh, so it's actually four different methods of reaching voters so that we can broaden our base of pool uh, of people who will respond. So when you're like doing the the old random digit dialing or calling people from the voter rolls, you know that they voted. That's one thing. But if you're, you know, asking people to send back a survey online, is it harder to find out whether they're telling the truth when they say they voted or they're likely to vote? I mean, how do you how do you you know correct for that? Yeah, it's one of the one of the biggest challenges of pollsters these days, and especially for pollsters that are doing polling with uh, a upcoming election in mind. The most important thing we can do is come up with a sample that is reflective of the likely electorate. And there's some judgment calls that are uh, pollsters need to make as to who will comprise that likely electorate. One of the biggest mistakes pollsters make is to have a sample that is not reflective of the likely voter base. And, you know, if you want to talk about how uh, Donald Trump may have impacted that in 2016 and 2020, we could discuss that as well. But the uh, the thing that we do as political pollsters, uh, to answer your question directly, is that we pull off the voter file as opposed to random digit dial so that we know for a fact that the people we contact are indeed registered voters. And in California, we actually have a database that is pretty sophisticated in the sense that it has a lot of background information on each individual voter, including their past voting habits. And it is a case that when you look at who's going to vote in an upcoming election, one of the best indicators of that is who voted in the last election. Mm -hmm. So we can choose voters who have a history of voting, and that helps us get a sample that is going to be more reflective of the next electorate. You mentioned Donald Trump. We can't avoid him. Uh, so let me just ask you about the 2016 presidential election, because a lot of people after that said, oh, my gosh, the polls got it all wrong. Mm -hmm. How come we didn't see this coming? Um, but then there was you know, a few weeks later, it was like, well, maybe that wasn't the case. What is your take on what happened and what impact, you know, Trump did have on the polling, uh, you know, by telling his 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 base to do one thing or another? It's it's the perfect case study in what happens when pollsters 
do not have a representative sample. What happened in 2016, and, and you can go back and forth a little bit about the degree to which the polls were off, but there's no question a lot of the states that we were polling, you know, when, when you know, the reason Donald Trump won in 2016 is that he won Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, three states that most observers felt were safely in the Hillary Clinton camp. Why were the polls wrong in those states and in many other states around the country? It's because the samples were not reflective of the likely electorate that came out to vote specifically for Donald Trump in the sense that he appealed to a slice of the electorate that is unlikely to respond to polls. Uh, And we could talk a little bit about the demographics that make up that uh, unexpected Trump voter. may not have been unexpected, but the the, um, proportion uh, that they comprised of the total electorate was higher than expected. So when pollsters do a model of we're going to have this many Democrats and this many Republicans, we expect this many women and this many men and this many from urban areas and this many from rural areas. You know, we have a formula that we put together that that gives us our best estimate of the likely electorate. In 2016, that formula was off because it underrepresented some of those demographics of people that came out to vote for Trump. And so to what extent have pollsters corrected for that? And does is, is is the mistake that was made that year, is it also a mistake that could have gotten repeated or could get repeated at you know, in other kinds of races in other states? Yes. No, the answer to that is yes, but I also want to emphasize that after 2016, there was a huge effort taken in among the polling industry, and we have a, a professional association of pollsters that has conferences every year and shares insights, and there was quite a bit of self-examination as to what went wrong. Uh, there was a whole bunch of, of, of kind of aftermath studies to see where the polls were wrong, what were the components that caused them to be wrong. Uh, there were adjustments made in 2018 and 2020. One real quick example is that we found that education was a factor in the 2016 polls. And if our samples over relied on college educated people or over represented college educated voters and did not appropriately represent the non-college educated voters, that was going to cause a significant gap in what our estimates were showing in the sense that we weren't appropriately reflecting that pool of voters that were non-college educated, primarily in rural areas of the country, in rural parts of those states I mentioned. So in 2018, 2020, pollsters corrected for that. They made sure that they had uh, quotas to ensure that the appropriate proportions of non-college educated people were compensated for in our samples. So obviously, you know, as I said, we don't try to focus on polls, but we do report on them from time to time, as do you know many in the media. And I'm just wondering, like as a pollster, you, you know, release data and then you see how it gets covered sometimes if it's you know released to the public and to the media. What, what are some of the common mistakes you see journalists make? The uh, biggest thing, I think, with regard to, well, let, let me pause for a second and just clarify that there is a difference between polls that are done by nonpartisan public pollsters whose job it is to inform both the media and the general public of what they're seeing with voter opinion versus polls that are done by partisan pollsters who generally are working for one side or the other. So let me first answer your question by looking at the misconceptions that some of the journalists 
uh, may occasionally uh, uh, report on with regard to the public pollsters, because public pollsters' job is is not to promote a candidate or a side. It's to provide accurate data. And I think in most cases, they do a very good job. I don't want to put down any of the public pollsters. I think they all take their jobs very seriously and uh, try to do the best. But the things to look for are, um, there are just a couple things right off the top. What is the sample size? Uh, and what is the margin of error that is associated with that sample size? Because if you only poll, you know, 200, 300 people, generally this, the margin of error is going to be so high that the numbers they put out are not, you know, the, the plus or minus on either side are, are, are so much so that you can't uh, draw any conclusions. So what's an acceptable plus minus margin of error? Uh, 4% would be more common of what pollsters look for. And generally you do sample sizes of 600, 500, 600 or more. Uh, and also the, the other thing that pollsters talk a lot about is the difference in particular subgroups. They'll talk about the gender gap or they'll talk about people of color. Like right now, you're hearing a lot of people talking about uh, Donald Trump has made inroads with younger voters or with uh, uh, Latino voters or even African-Americans. And you know, to draw those sorts of conclusions, you need to have significant sample sizes of younger voters, African-Americans and Latino voters, because if you're just relying on you know 50 or 100, of that subgroup that happens to you know be inside your larger sample, then the margin of error is so great that it's difficult to make conclusions about those subgroups. So sometimes when you're when journalists report on public polls, not only do you need to look at the total sample size, but you also look need to look at the subgroup sample size for those particular slices of the electorate that you may be reporting on. To what extent does the media and the way we cover a story? Um, frame a narrative, create a narrative that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'll give one example. In the, the U.S. Senate race here in California, and I should say you're working for Katie Porter That's correct, for yes. transparency. Um, but Barbara Lee, who is the you know congresswoman from Oakland, often comes in third, well behind Katie Porter and Adam Schiff. There's a huge percentage of undecided voters, but the media will often kind of promote this narrative that Barbara Lee can't win. A, is that true? And B, what impact do things like that have when you draw conclusions that really aren't justified? I am not a big believer in the hypothesis that polls drive votes. I actually think votes drive polls <laughs> to the point where, uh, you know, and, and I say this based not only on, you know, years of doing polling uh, ourselves in our company, but also in focus groups in which you ask people about these sorts of things and sit around a table and just talk it out. And voters generally will say, I'm going to take a look at the candidates and I am going to base my opinion on the one that that I think uh, has a policy positions that I agree with or the one that I feel I can trust or who shares my values. I mean, the, the sorts of things that you hear people talk about are kind of how do I relate to the candidate? And how much do I trust them to represent me if they get elected? Very seldom do I hear anyone say, I'm going to go with the one that I think has the best chance of winning. So even if, if in this example you gave, Scott, even if the public polls are saying that it's, uh, you know, the Barbara Lee's a distant third behind Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, um, it's unlikely that, in our opinion, the voters will say, well, I took a look at the polls. It doesn't look like Lee has much of a chance to win, so I'm not going to vote for her. But it could affect donors and fundraising. Donors are a different story. 
Yeah. Donors are donor. And, and when I you know, I talked a second ago about the difference between public polls and, and uh, private polls, uh, private polls working on behalf of a candidate. A lot of those private polls are released to influence the donor class as opposed to the general public. So, yes, donors, you do see a lot of attention placed on polls with regard to where should donors put their money which is another whole topic. Yeah. In, in terms of coming back to the media, uh, you mentioned you know you have to look at the sample size and the plus minus uh, margin of error. Um, what are some other mistakes that you think we should we as journalists should be on the lookout for? Well, one of the things that that uh, is really I mean there are several building blocks to doing a good poll and and sampling and the sample size is clearly one of them. Sample size we just talked about. The sampling method is another. Are you going to be sampling people? that are sure to vote or some of them that may not vote because if you have a lot of non-voters in your sample, that will uh, pollute the representativeness. But there are a couple other things. Um, one huge thing is question wording. How how are the questions worded? Are they done in a totally neutral way? Or are there some questions that are phrased in a way that might lead the public to respond one way or another? Question sequencing is a big deal. And sometimes you see people publish the results of an opinion question. Um, do you support or oppose a ceasefire in the Middle East? Uh, that may be influenced by a previous question that you didn't know was asked that told that, you know, may have given people information about the number of uh, hostages or the or the 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 Palestinians that may be uh, um, suffering. So, you you also need to look and see not only how was that question phrased, but where did it appear in the poll? And were there any preceding questions that could have influenced the response on that one? Those are just a couple things. Yeah. Mentioned the you know diversity and the importance of sample size and all that. Are there sp- special challenges in a state as diverse as California? And when you're sampling, say, an Asian American community, how important is it to have bilingual pollsters? Very important to have bilingual pollsters, especially in California, uh, and even you know if we, if we talk about San Francisco specifically, if we don't do polling in in uh, Chinese languages, we miss a significant slice of the electorate. Same thing in California, where both uh, their AAPI dialects, uh, languages that we should be polling in, Spanish as well. Uh, that is another thing to look for. If it's English only these days, uh, you're missing a slice of the electorate that could be significant with regard to the total results. Are there communities that are harder to reach for one reason or another? And I would think maybe, you know, language obviously is one barrier, but what are some of the others? Yeah, there are a lot of um, uh, factors that cause us to be uh, sensitive with regard to missing certain types of people. Uh, Language is an issue. Socioeconomic status is an issue. Uh, there are certain areas in which you know we find you know geographic areas, rural areas, small towns, in which we f- find response rate challenges, um, and um, you know, the, and then we you just you know, one of the bi- <laughs> I actually have to pause a second because I think just you know, if you go out to any public area and say and go up to any random group of people and say do you ever do do you ever has anyone ever reached you and asked you to take a poll. Uh, and, and you'll find, you know, 90 out of 100 say no. 
Uh, and then we would ask, do you, would you, if anyone ever asked you to take a poll, would you? And 90 out of 100 would say no, mm. or maybe even 99 out of 100. You know, people just don't take polls very much. I mean, there there's some online that, you know, if you if you go shopping at a particular online site, they'll, they'll give you a survey. And some people will be more likely to respond to that because yeah. they know that they're giving feedback to someone that they just patronized. But on a political poll, most people will say like, I don't want to be bothered. I don't trust you. I don't know what you're going to do with the data. Leave me alone. Yeah. And that's a huge challenge to us. And that's something that, you know, I talk about what what it was like in the 1940s and 1950s. There was a little bit more eagerness to participate in polls then. It was a little new and, you know, people were excited that someone was asking them in their opinion. These days, it's kind of like, get away from me. I have my life to lead. I don't (laughs) want to answer any questions from a pollster. Yeah. I would imagine sometimes you get asked to do polls for people who are thinking of running for office. Um, and you sort of test their name ID or their ideas or whatever it might be, their popularity approval rating. How, how do those conversations go? I mean, I, I must, I, I would think that from time to time, you're going you're gonna to get some really bad data and somebody's like, dude, don't even think about it. You know, how do you have those conversations? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question because, there, you know, it does happen a lot in our business in which someone will come and say, I'm thinking about running for office. I don't know whether I'm viable or not. I know it's going to cost a lot of money. I don't know if I want to spend the money, if it's a lost cause. So when those sorts of people come up to me as a pollster and say, what do I do? There are a couple of responses I have right off the bat. One is, why are you running? What What is your purpose for actually wanting to uh, seek public office because if we don't know the answer to that, pollsters can't really help them decide whether they're viable or not. How often do you do a poll that suggests, well, you know, you wouldn't have a good chance of winning, and they say, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway because I got a lot of money and I'm going to spend it. Well, there are some people in that category <laughs> these days that do that. Yeah, I mean, most of the, 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 the some of those people never even bother with polls because they just say, I, I got, I got some money to spend. Let's go, let's go try this. You know, we're bored with life. We're yeah. going to go try elective office is a new challenge. But uh, most people will will not want to sink a whole bunch of money into a political campaign without having some concept that they could actually win and not just fall flat on their face. Last question, David. Uh, we're, you know, into 2024. What are you looking for? What are you watching? Um, the biggest thing about 2024 is the mood of the public especially with regard to how they look at politics. It's very, very negative, almost like at an all-time low. Uh, Voters have never held politicians in high esteem, but the trust level at this point uh, looking into the 2024 elections are very low with every institution, including the media, including pollsters, you know, including uh, institutions that formerly were in held in high regard. And the biggest thing I'm going to be looking for is what does that do to turnout is some of the distrust and the anger and people's frustration with the partisanship and the divisiveness and the negativity of politics, does that cause them to say, I'm not going to vote at all. I don't trust the system. And does that especially affect young people, you know, who who have been a big factor in the last few elections? And are those people saying like enough already? I just don't see that the world's changing. Doesn't matter who we vote for. I'm staying home. And that is a factor that we're looking at. Well, we will try here at KQD not to contribute to the cynicism, but David Binder, thank you so much for coming in and pulling the curtain back a little bit on polling. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here.
David Binder is a veteran pollster. He's worked for candidates and campaigns you know, like, say, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, and a whole lot of others. All right, before we say goodbye, one more thing that we're thinking about tonight in Los Angeles. The top four candidates for the U.S. Senate seat, once held by Dianne Feinstein, are going to be meeting on one stage for the first time. It's a debate sponsored by Politico, Fox News LA, and USC. So what are we going to be looking for in tonight's debate? Well, for starters, Adam Schiff, the uh, frontrunner, is he going to play it safe? Is he going to try to protect his apparent lead? Or does he try to tie Republican Steve Garvey to Donald Trump? That would be kind of a crafty way to signal to Republicans that he is their guy, because I'm sure that Mr. Schiff would rather face Garvey than another Democrat in November. That would be a nice way to maybe pad his vote. And how does the Israel-Hamas issue play out? Do progressives Porter and Lee go after Schiff for being too pro-Israel or not sympathetic enough to Palestinians and others killed by Israeli bombing of Gaza? We'll be watching. And then tomorrow on Political Breakdown, KQED's Marisa Lagos and Politico's Chris Catalago join me from Los Angeles to dissect the debate. And that's a wrap for Political Breakdown for this January 22nd. We're a production of KQED. Our engineers are Seal Muller and Catherine Monahan. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 